0: By 2022, IDC predicts that 75% of enterprises will embed intelligent automation into technology and process development, using AI-based software to discover operational and experiential insights that will guide innovation. Now, over the next few years, IDC researchers expect spending on AI-enabled RPA to outpace that of non-AI-enabled RPA. Gartner predicts that 90% of large organizations globally will adopt robotics process automation in some form by 2022 and will triple the capacity of their existing RPA portfolios through 2024. In this podcast for Future CIO, we are joined by Dan Tierns, Chief Technology Officer for Asia Pacific with Blue Prism. Dan, welcome to Podchats for Future CIO. Thanks very much. It's
1: lovely to be here.
0: Do you see RPA as being exclusive to any one function within an organization?
1: RPA is wider than simply finance. You know, it's a, in a sense, a horizontal technology. So it applies to finance. It applies to, you know, the call center. It applies to back office functions. It, it's horizontal. But what it, you know, RPA stands for robotic process automation. I have had people sort of say, you know, expecting to see machines running around shop floors, it, it's not those sort of robots, it's a it's a software service. And it, it approaches an age old problem in a kind of new way. The age old problem is we're always trying to optimize our business process, we're all trying to do things a bit faster, fewer errors, we're trying to do things more efficiently, and you know, IT has been optimising those processes for decades, and they do that by building something, You know, uh, building a new service, building a new application, building a new thing. And that building is risky, and it's costly, and it takes time. We always know how long it takes for IT to roll out these big projects. So the light bulb moment for our founders was to say, well, hang on a second, all the things we want to do, can already be done by the applications that we already have. I already have SAP, and SAP allows me to create customers and issue invoices and issue purchase orders and pay bills and what have you. So why not use those applications rather than try and build something new? Why don't I create a software service that mimics what a human might do? You know, if a human clicks a menu item and then presses New and then fills in some uh, some data onto a form and then clicks the button at the bottom to save it, well, why not have a robot that can mimic those exact same uh, actions that the human takes? And that way, I'm automating and I'm optimising, but I'm not having to build something new and all of the time and effort and and risk and and cost that that takes. And so that was kind of the lightbulb moment. How do I build a software service that can mimic a, a human, can understand what's on the screen, what does the form look like, what does the page look like, what does the window look like on the screen, and create this process, in effect, this series of actions series of activities that my software robot does really, as I say, mimics what a human does. That's the premise behind it. When you take that concept, then you start saying, well, you know, a lot of the things I do is laborious work. I produce an end of quarter report. I do it the same way every single quarter. Why not get a robot to do that? My bank account reconciliations really is humans comparing what's on this form here or this page here with what's on that page there. It's not a great use of a human's skill sets. Why not get a robot to do that? So, that's the premise behind it, and it's been very much a, a game-changing technology for a lot of organizations. The industry's had incredible momentum, and that momentum has been on the back of really some amazing return on investment that organizations realize from the use of RPA. So that's the Reader's Digest a version. Hope that makes some sense, but the simple thing is mimic human actions. Now, in terms of recent advances like artificial
0: intelligence and machine learning, how are these technologies transforming the way automation is delivered or executed?
1: Well, they're having a quite a profound impact, in fact. You know, we we kind of compare, we've got a guy that works for us here, he's in our professional services team, he, he calls it dumb automation and smart automation. Now that guy's never gonna get into marketing because we don't really think of it as dumb automation, but, but we can certainly think of vanilla style RPA versus a more sophisticated smart RPA that's making use of AI and other complementary technologies. And it really does change what you can do with RPA. In order to, I think, explain that. Let me also take a step back. You know, the, the simplistic way of looking at RPA is that it enables organizations to undertake their workloads faster than they might have otherwise done, cheaper than they might have otherwise done, fewer errors, more efficiently, all that sort of stuff. That's that's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it. But, it, but I think there's a more nuanced way of looking. And the nuanced way of looking at it is what we're providing to organizations is another style of resource. So I've got my human resources, and I've got my digital resources. And each of those two styles of resources have got specific skills, you know. And, and certainly, my digital worker is not a carbon copy of my human worker. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all set of skill. The things that humans are not good at are things that my digital worker is very good at. Humans aren't good at stare and compare. You know, they're not good at copying from here to there. We make mistakes. Uh, that's why we have the sort of the maker-checker concept. But my digital workers, they're very good at that. They do it 24 hours a day, never make a mistake. On the other hand, my digital worker They don't have any imagination. They don't have very much in the way of judgment or reasoning or empathy or lateral thinking. Those are the things that humans are very good at. And so, how RPA's change the organisation is to enable these sort of us to be able to, in effect, triage our work and say, here's a set of work that is simple, run-of-the-mill, standard, you know, the, the happy path we always talk about. Well, those sort of activities, perfect. Let's give them to my digital workforce. You know, I don't need to, in effect, waste my human skill sets and waste my human's time on those simple things. On the other hand, here's a whole bunch of complex scenarios, unique scenarios, scenarios that require lateral thinking and judgment. Let's triage and, and give those to the humans. So that's wonderful. What we're really talking about is not, you know, RPA, there's certainly a, there's a misapprehension that RPA is sort of, you know, it's about eliminating the human jobs and eliminating the human workforce. That's not the case. Actually, what it is, is triaging work to say, here's stuff that is Better handled by humans, more value added work, better utilized human skill sets. Great. And that's kind of the nuanced view of what RPA has given me. There's another side to it as well. And this is on I'm getting to the AI. The other way of thinking about RPA is I've now got an infinite workforce, I'm not constrained by how many humans I've got in my office. I'm not constrained about where those I have an infinite workforce now that infinite workforce can't do anything you know it, it doesn't have you know unlimited skills to do any sort of task and so if I have an infinite workforce those you know workers are in effect stupid you know or too stupid to complete the activity that doesn't really help me and so where AI is coming into this picture is to say well I can start to give more skills to that infinite workforce I can start to give language skills by layering in natural language processing and be able to determine intent or sentiment. I can add in some vision skills so that my robots can read what's on a piece of paper or a PDF file. I can start to, in effect, what the AI is doing is providing my digital worker with more skills so that there's more activities they can undertake. I can do more of the triaging and really expanding the number of use cases where smart RPA, intelligent automation, becomes a feasible approach to solving a problem or securing some sort of opportunity. And so that AI piece is really critical in order to get me past my simple use cases for RPA into much more sophisticated ones that add much more value to the organisation. Do you see this now, this enhanced, AI
0: enhanced robots? Are they now going to cause even more concern with the human
1: workforce? I said, oh God, now I have somebody that really knows what it, what I'm doing. I think that there will be that concern just naturally. I think that we're going to look back in a few years time and say that that concern was probably a bit overblown, probably a bit unnecessary, you know, in much the same way as when people start with RPA, there's the concern about taking the, the human jobs, but that's not what happens. So yes, I think the concern is natural, but I think it will end up being overblown. And some of the reasons I say that, I think about my infinite workforce again, and I think it's very much tied into this. When I start saying infinite workforce, and what could I do if I had that infinite workforce, the solutions that companies are thinking about are not today's problems. You know, they're not, it's not about improving what I already do today. It's about creating a new solution to perhaps a problem that we've always suffered from but haven't had a feasible answer to. You know, it's something that we always call the cost. It's the cost of doing business. I'd like to get rid of that cost but it's the cost of doing business. There's no way to solve this. I'll give you an example. Maybe it makes some sense. So we have a customer of ours who is a uh, car manufacturer. And someone within that organization had an idea about essentially better use of data, better data analysis to come up with some new commercial opportunities. They are very sensitive, so they didn't tell us exactly what. But they did tell us that, in the end, tens of millions of pounds of extra revenue based upon this smarter use of data. Well, that's nice. But here's the problem. The data was sitting in 44,000 PDF documents. 44,000 PDF documents was where that data had to come from. And they calculated that it was going to take them, they're very accurate, 20,401 person hours to open up all those documents, copy and paste the data and put it somewhere. Now calculate that up. That's like 10 people for a year just getting the data. Now they were never going to do this. No organization is going to go through that effort. You know, So it wasn't a case that I was using humans and then I wasn't using humans. It was just, we weren't going to do it. The Blue Prism Robot did it in 200, 70 hours. And so it made something that was never going to be possible possible. And I think that's where the imaginative organizations, when they start saying we're going to use smart RPA, we're going to add in AI, they're trying to create new solutions, not make old problems a little bit better. Not, you know, it's not 100% of the case, but that's certainly where the imagination lies, right? And that's certainly where the imaginative, you know, head of the COE for RPA, that's what they're thinking about. So I think that a lot of those problems are going to be overblown. Now, I will say there's absolutely going to be a concern about the accuracy of AI and the accuracy of algorithms. Not whether should we or shouldn't we not use them. I don't think that's going to be the problem. There's going to be concern about the bias in algorithms. There's going to be concern about discrimination, you know, embedding discrimination in algorithms. We see it lots, right? We saw stories about facial recognition algorithms, not accurately identifying, say, African-American faces or Chinese faces. You know, there's stories about GPT-3, which is a natural language processing, having bias against uh, certain religions and the like those things we're gonna have to police very carefully And and, and I think it will be a long time to get it right. So there will be a concern. I think it's less about should we use AI and more about can we make AI accurate enough to not discriminate against uh, people in society. We'll need to be vigilant about that. But I'm confident that we'll have the right answers, Probably slower than people are thinking, and probably with less impact to you and I in the workforce than people are considering as well. But vigilance is an important word in that conversation, I think.
0: RPA has been in the workplace for a few years now. Now, if an organization is already using RPA tools, mm-hmm. how would they approach introducing smart RPA tools or this intelligent RPA? Do they have to throw out the old one and
1: bring in a new one or <laughs> add something in there? I don't know. Well, uh, okay. So, first of all, it depends on the RPA you've been using. You know, the, I think in general, if you've been using one of the, the mainstream RPA products and one of the, sort of the market leading RPA products, then you you are likely to have a head start, and you're likely to be able to layer in your AI on top of those existing RPA tools. Certainly, you can with Blue Prism, but and there's a there's a big but here. You know, it, it's also not just about what is your technology that you've used. But how have you implemented it? And what approach you've taken to implement it? There are certainly different approaches to RPA. There's a wide spectrum of, of uses for RPA. There's a wide spectrum of problems that people are trying to solve. They're not all the same problem. And depending upon where you sit on that spectrum will make it easier or harder for you to adopt AI. If I can give you a, a simple analogy for that or an example of that. You know, there's two main styles of RPA. We talk about attended automation, unattended automation, or or Desktop automation and kind of more the traditional RPA. I think if your approach has been desktop automation, then there are significant changes that you'll need to make to your program in order to make use of AI because you know, it's is a whole different technology and it's not going to run on my desktop and it's not going to run kind of for the mundane and the, the menial sort of problems. And so I'd see it much more, you know, there's, there's certainly technology considerations to look at, but I think the biggest consideration is imagination. Yeah, here's what I mean by that. I think if I think art the RPA industry did themselves a disservice by, in the early days, talking about RPA as the solution to the mundane and the menial problems within your organization. Mundane and menial. That was the phrase that was always used. And I think people have taken that to heart. And so they're looking for mundane and and menial things to throw at RPA. There's not so many of them, right? Mundane and menial also means kind of low value, also means harder to generate an ROI. And when you start talking about AI and you're talking about these much more sophisticated technologies, you're not talking about mundane and menial. You're talking about things that are core to the business. You're talking about things that are transformational. You're talking about things that are mission critical for an organization. And there's a whole different mindset to that. If if your RPA world has been the world of mundane and menial, you're not probably not thinking about RPA as being a transformational technology, you're likely to see resistance from within the organization. There's a bit of a, you know, that old analogy, if I have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Well, if I've been thinking about RPA as mundane and menial, I'm not thinking about it for AI style solutions. And it's really interesting to, to look at the organizations who are moving further down this journey, and you can see their mindsets change. And it's really interesting. You know, and some of them do a good job with it sometimes. But I, I saw it with one of our customers, they're a uh, a big food manufacturer, dairy producer in Europe. And they were using Blue Prism, they've been using Blue Prism for a number of years. They had a very good COE, a centre of excellence was set up, they were called the Process Automation COE and the COE said, well, we've got a problem because we've marketed ourselves internally as the Process Automation COE. And so everybody just comes to us with problems they see as being process automation problems, You know, the mundane and the medial. And we think we're missing an opportunity here because there's so much more all that we could be doing. The, the people, the business people, the subject matter experts that are coming to us with the problems, they don't appreciate all the things that we could be doing with AI and these other complementary you know, technologies. So they had the brilliant idea. And I, I love that. I love the story. They changed their name. They said, we're no longer the process automation COE. We're the problem solver COE. You know? <laughs> so just come to us with problems. Whatever problems you see, you come to us with problems. We'll tell you whether or not there's a solution. Maybe there won't be a solution to the problem. But we've got a better appreciation for all of the way these complementary technologies can play a role. And we're better able to say, here's how the solution going to look. And it transformed their business. You know, so it's this change of mindset, this change of imagination of what are the sort of problems we're looking to solve. And I think that that's the, the mental leap that organizations need to make, right? That RPA is not about the mundane and menial. It's not about just the, the simple little tasks. If you want to deliver real ROI from RPA, you need to be thinking about end-to-end processes. You need need to be thinking about processes that are much more mission critical and core business processes rather than ancillary processes or sort of back office processes. Those are the, the, the changing mindsets uh, that that's absolutely key here any precautions or
0: considerations that an organization needs to undertake when they're deciding what tools they? As you said, there are a lot of tools out there in the market. Which tool works best with me and how do I integrate it? Those are some of the things that I hear, especially from those delegated or charged with deploying the solution into, into the operation.
1: Absolutely. I think there's been a reality to inject into the conversation, of course. And you know the first reality is that I think there's this view that AI is a panacea. It's a solution to all ills. If I've got a problem, the solution is And then we realize just how difficult it actually is to get it right, and I think that's a learning curve for a lot of organisations. I, I read an article in the Economist uh, last year. The title of the article was about businesses finding AI really hard to adopt. That's quite eye-opening. They kind of made reference to a survey that was done by Boston Consulting Group and MIT into what value are organisations getting from AI, and it was really eye-opening. They said you know, of that 70% of organisations had failed to get any more than little value out of their AI projects. They actually said even worse, I think, that of companies who'd actually made a significant investment in AI, 40% of those companies had realized zero benefit. That's really eye-opening. And the point they were making, and I think it's really worthwhile sort of understanding this, is that AI can't live in a vacuum, right? To make AI successful, you need more than AI. It can't live in a vacuum. And if I sort of talk about it simplistically, every paradigm or every sort of digital technology, AI technology, machine learning technology, they all sort of follow the same paradigm. I have to source data from a whole bunch of different places, often multiple different systems, all, you know, with their independent data models, different data models, legacy, proprietary. And I've got to correlate all that together. I've got to feed it into my digital technology. That's difficult. That is very complex to do all of that. then once I get some answer from my algorithm or technology, I've got to do something with it. And I have to integrate that back into the organization's processes. And until you can do the upstream and downstream piece, all you've got is a research project. And that's the complexity, I think, that most organizations struggle with. In some respects, the digital piece in the middle is the easier piece. But tied into the wider organization is what moves it from being a research project to an operational project. And we see it all the time. The way in which many of our customers are making use of Blue Prism and let's say machine learning in this case, is to feed data in, yes, algorithms throw out, they're throwing out a lot of false positives, a lot of false positives. And those false positives have the potential to, in effect, overwhelm the people. Because, you know, now I have to, you know, we are a customer who's an energy company in the States, you know, and they've got an algorithm for identifying energy fraud, you know, people are essentially stealing energy because of identity theft. I said that algorithm throws out so many false positives that we couldn't actually rely upon it. People see that a lot. So now what they do is they say, well, Blue Prism we will get your robots do that first level of investigation, you know, to look up websites and compare data and, and take the false, you know, try to minimize the false positives to then send it to our human investigators to do the real work. So it's operationalization of the AI. And, and I say that's, I think that's uh, what a lot of people kind of struggle with, turning it from a research project into, into a real project. Now, beyond that, you know, there's, there's always your functional and non-functional problems, right? You know, the functional problems, bias, discrimination, you know, how is my algorithm deterministic? And how can I prove why the algorithm said that you're stealing energy and not them? You know, how do we audit that? There's all those sort of functional problems. Of course, you've got your non-functional stuff around data residency, data privacy, GDPR, all of those things that organizations need to be careful of. So there's a lot of pitfalls here. Um, and I don't think there's any one answer for everyone. But I think that if I could make this recommendation, it's the obvious one, you know, start simple, build on success, an obvious one. And within the context of that, I think you can say there's a lot of very good, in a sense, pre-trained AI that you can make use of. Natural language processing is a good example of that. You know, computer vision is a good example of that. A lot of the cognitive technologies, let's, let's say that the AWSs, the, the Microsofts, the Googles, and, and sort of, uh, you know, FinTech or XXX tech companies have, have created. They're comparatively simpler than starting yourself with your own algorithms, your own data models and what have you and that's probably a, a good place to start and then and then build on those successes you know, the old adage you know walk before you run.
0: We're coming towards the end of 2021, coming into 2022. What does the future of an AI-enabled workforce look like? And at what point do you anticipate that this to become the norm rather than the exception?
1: What do I think the workforce of the future is going to look like? I really do think there's going to be a hybrid workforce, particularly large organizations. will have the digital worker and the, the human worker. And the digital work is doing a significant percentage of the total workload of the organization. There's very few organizations, organizations that are there now, then maybe probably there's no organizations there now where you'd say that digital workers are doing a significant percentage of my total work. But I do really do think that it's going to continue to change. And we will have this hybrid workforce in the future. And I don't pretend to be some futurist, I don't pretend to know what will the workforce of the future look like, I think it'll be different for every organization it will be different for every industry. But here's what I see, you know, I, you don't have to spend a lot of time on the internet to see stories about the Great Resignation, or the conversations that are taking place about, you know, the hybrid workplace, you know, work from home, work from the office. You know, there are serious studies being done and serious conversations being had in the media, in the HR departments about things like the four-day work week. So I don't know what it's going to look like, but it will be different. And, and that we can guarantee. So it will be different. And now organizations are going to have this really difficult balancing act because on the one hand, they've got the competing demands of their customer base. The customer base is asking for better service, more personalized service, more proactive service, more real-time service. That's what customers are expecting and organizations want to deliver that. On the other hand, they've got their employees. The employees are asking for more flexibility. They want better work-life balance. They want you know a more challenging job. They wanna feel fulfilled within their job. And you've got these two very competing interests. And the digital workforce really is one of the tools, it might be the only tool, let's not pretend, but it, it's certainly one of the tools that's going to enable organisation to provide the better service with greater flexibility. And, and I think that's really sort of key to the workforce in the future. Now, when's it going to become the norm rather than the exception? I think there's sort of a, you know, there's kind of a kind of nuanced view of that. In some respects, RPA, the use of RPA is the norm today. You know, you started with your preamble at the start. You started, you said Gartner have said their prediction is by 2022, 90% of large organisations will be using RPA. And, and that's certainly our own experiences bear that out. So the use of RPA is quite normal in those organizations. However, it's kind of tactical in many respects. You, you certainly wouldn't say that the digital workforce is ubiquitous in almost any organizations now, and certainly not at that small to medium enterprise level. right? So the use of RPA is quite normal in many Organizations, but it's not ubiquitous. It's certainly not what I would consider a hybrid workforce. Gartner's saying further, they expect that perhaps the statistic bears this out. You know, even though 90% of those large organizations are using RPA already or kind of by 2022, they're saying by 2024, those same organizations will grow their real estate, their digital workforce by 300%. So massive growth still to come. So I would say that there's a long way to go. And I think you're looking at really at sort of five years plus before you can really say this is the norm for most organizations, maybe even longer. Um, but certainly for acceptance of a digital workforce as being a viable tool, we're seeing that already. The effort to roll it out so that it becomes ubiquitous and starts to do a significant percentage of the total, there's a long way to go for that. Dan, thank you
0: for joining us on Podchats for Future CIO.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: That was Dan Terence, Chief Technology Officer for Asia Pacific with Blue Prism on the topic of revolutionizing operations and realizing the future of work. You are listening into podcasts for Future CIO. As always, if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on this channel, simply email us at editors at society.com. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you won't miss an episode of Podchats for Future CIO. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great day, and see you on the next episode of Podchats for Future CIO. Bye for now.